Let's pray. Father, my heart is full of thanks for these friends who manage and lead Desiring God. What a gift they are to me, to the church. And I pray your blessing on them in this time together. Lord, there are hundreds of needs in this room that some we know about, most we don't. And they're so diverse. Emotions are so different right now. Longings are different and pain is different and happiness is different. Mm. And so I want miracles to happen out of my mouth. Mm. I pray for a gift of prophecy, as it were, Mm. so that I speak words that would be supernaturally penetrating and meet needs that I don't know anything about. I pray for the good of the ministry, that our hearts would be knit together here, that we would love what we're called to do and see it as really significant in your kingdom purposes. So come and and guide my random thoughts. Bring them together into a, a pattern that would be most helpful. Building faith and honoring Christ and advancing the spread of a passion for your supremacy in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This talk was triggered yesterday in the gathering with the uh, BCS Sam guys because of uh, Ryan's question about poetry. <laughs> he asked me about uh, you kind of you kind of like poetry and you think poetry's important and. And he said, I I don't have a poetic bone in my body. What should I do? And does it matter? And I I totally did not expect that question. And and so I've just been thinking about it ever since then. Like, does this matter? I mean, should I even bother? Is this so peripheral to anything? So I'm going to talk about that. Um, And and I woke up this morning feeling guilty about that. I wake up feeling guilty every morning, but but it's always different. And and I thought, okay, Lord, is that is is my worry about this a word from you? And the reason, I mean, it's very simple to explain why I was feeling guilty about it. It it seems like it's not the cross. Okay, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You're going to talk about poetry, so you you feel the why my heart would say, really? I mean, is that? close enough to the center to help long term and and I as I processed um, it really does relate Lord <laughs> and so I hope you feel that before we're, we're done so that's that's where it came from in some of the struggles um, desiring God desiring God all right there we are God the second word in our name is the ultimate reality of the universe and he has contours to his character and his being. He is one thing and not another thing. Everything you say about him might not be the case 
It's possible to say false things about God and true things about God. He has edges. He's not that. He is this. And we have a vision. It's summed up in the Desire God affirmation of faith. And so knowing really matters to us. Thinking rightly about God really matters. G-O-D is a reality. And so thinking matters. That's one word. And, and desiring is all about what's going on inside here, inside our hearts, our souls, our minds. We, we care here massively about how our hearts respond to G-O-D, this reality. Thinking about Him matters to us. His contours matter. Drawing a portrait of Him so it's He's recognizable to people rather than being mush. It's like whatever you want. I mean, if you like it matters to us but over here this ministry with all of its resources and all of its efforts is built on the assumption that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied so emotions really matter and that that's why poetry and language and the things you say and do that awaken emotion matter so there's the connection with our um, <coughs> name. The, the uh, aim of the ministry is we exist to spread a passion. How do passions happen? Do they just get manipulated? How do you create one? Where do they come from? Some things you read and they leave you passionless. Other things you read and you're vibrating at the end. I can hardly stand it. This is so powerful and so helpful. And what, What's the difference? So, the role of poetry... Um, let me begin with a definition. Because this is broader than maybe you think it is. I, I'm really talking first about a, a way of looking at the world. And then I'm talking about a way of speaking. Um, Here's my definition of poetry. Poetry um, is an effort to share a moving experience by using language that is chosen and structured differently from ordinary prose. It's really basic. An effort to share and, and by that I mean get my experience into your experience so that you taste something of what I saw or felt when I saw a sunset or saw a child or, or lost a child or, or, or whatever. So, so I can help you taste deep down something of what I'm tasting. Because and, and, I don't like the idea that you're just standing there looking at me with a blank face, you know, and, and I'm happy as can be or I'm broken hearted and nothing, you're not... This is not happening. How do you help it happen? That's what you do to a thousand people when you preach or one person when, you're, when you want some empathy. So an effort to share a moving experience by using language that is chosen and structured. You're choosing the words you choose and you're structuring them differently than if you just, boom, getting it, you know, writing them in memo as soon as you can and getting the email off as soon as you can. Just communicate a fact. Meeting at three o'clock, that's not poetry. Um, 
But if you paused and you wanted to awake a certain feeling about that meeting at three o'clock, you'd give some thought. Now, what, what could I say? What might help? You know, get them here and get them here in a certain feeling that would move towards poetry. That's my, that's my definition of it. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose. He's addressing poetry here. Here's why Edwards thinks poetry matters. There's there's no other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Now, for that to have the dynamite weight it should, you have to realize the the thesis statement of the book Religious Affections is true religion consists very much in the affections which means there is no true Christianity without, without affections so if singing and versification or poetic use of language tends to awaken authentic spiritual affections it is massively important because that's what true religion consists in. Now, a little story, a little background, just to take you, this is a quote from, I printed this out from my journal from last year when I was on leave. Um, and so here, here, here it is. I said to Noel last night as we were going to sleep and I was holding in my hand the collection of final poems just published by Harold Bloom called Till I End My Song, is there anything in your life like this? I have loved poetry since I was in the 11th grade. Love to read it, love to write it. I have drifted from it for seasons, but returned again and again, often more passionate about it than before. This amazes me. I have changed in so many ways between the age of 17 and 65. But this remains. I love to write. Not bare factual writing or bare argument, though I believe in facts and arguments. They are essential. But I want to be moved when I read. And I want to move people when I write. I want deep parts of them to be awakened to the greatest realities. I don't want to merely impart information or get information. I want to feel not with the body, but with the soul, the wonder or horror or glory of things, of God. That inclines me to poetry over and over again. It inclines me to read it and write it. In writing, I awake as often as in reading. But the combination is important. Is this sense of poetry what Solomon sought and this relates to something we were talking about with BCS guys yesterday, is this sense of poetry what Solomon sought 
when it says in Ecclesiastes 12.10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He sought to find words of delight. He sought them. Words that do more than inform. There is light delight and there is weighty delight. There is clever use of words, puns and the like, and there is the surprising turn of phrase that pleases as it penetrates to deep places. There are apples of gold and settings of silver, Proverbs 25, 11. There are double-edged sword thrusts that divide soul and spirit, Hebrews 4, 12. As I was thinking about the worth of poetry, this thought came to mind. Poetry is not the answer, but it is a greater part of the answer than 95% of what we do with our time. <laughs> I put that in bold. Poetry is not the answer. Now, I don't think this talk right now is the, is the remedy for the world, like Japan or, or what. It's not, it's not the remedy for the world. It just a greater part of the remedy than 95% of what we do. Mm -hmm. Woe to me if I think souls are saved by me or them becoming poetic. But few are damned by it. And of the thousand things we fill our days with, this could be more useful to the glory of God than what we do most of the time. Let me talk about the Bible for a minute because I want to know whether I'm just going off with my personal bent or whether this has some, some biblical warrant. Um, Realms of Gold by Leland Riken the classics in Christian perspective and it's got a chapter on uh, poetry and the Christian life and in it he says at least a third of the Bible is written in poetic form its prevalence shows that God wants people to understand and enjoy it seems right to me um, very strange that the God of the universe should inspire one third of his holy book in poetic form I'm looking at it right here this Proverbs you see the way it's written there because of all this structure you when you write in parallels, you, you have to give thought to what you're saying. First half, second half, they have to have some kind of balance. They have to either repeat or add or alter. You have to think about it. Lamentations. Let me get the facts right now. I mentioned it yesterday. The book of Lamentations is the most structured book in the Bible. And it's the emotionally most explosive book in the Bible because it is written as a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and the horrors that are happening in Jerusalem are beyond description, beyond poetic description. 
So if you're a, a man who loves Jerusalem and you see her, uh, say one of the towns that just lost 10,000 people, just, just like that, and, and you're there kneeling over and you're looking for your child and you see a little hand coming out from under a concrete slab. You've been looking at these pictures? I mean, there, there's the little hand. Now what do you do? You, you don't write a poem that day. You just fall down and just weep and weep and weep. And then you think of, of how many thousands are under this rubble and you weep. And that goes on for days. And then, under God's inspiration, you want to record this. This is Lamentations. You want to record Jerusalem destroyed. What do you do? Chapter, let me get it right now. Chapter 1, there are five chapters in Lamentations. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 have 22 stanzas each. Each stanza begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is even more structured. It's the center of the book. There are five chapters, three is at the center. In it, great is thy faithfulness. The song we love to sing. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And these women are boiling their children and eating them because they're starving. Great is thy faithfulness. How do you structure that chapter? It's 22 stanzas. Not only does each stanza begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but each of the three lines in each stanza begins with that same letter. It's the most tightly structured chapter in the Bible. And then chapter 5 at the end, 22 lines, but not 22 letters. Nothing is accidental in this book. It, it, is, it, is, like, it is like saying, I have emotions here. They are the biggest, deepest, strongest, most horrible, most wonderful emotions I've ever known in my life. I must record this, and I will hem myself in as tightly as I can. To do it. Isn't that strange? <laughs> and I said to, to the guys yesterday, a river runs deeper when there are banks. A gorge that pushes in on a, on a fjord, like you've seen some of these Norway pictures, and, and you say, that, that mountain is coming down from about 3,000 feet up to the edge of this water, and judging by the angle, I think it's going another 10,000 feet down. This is deep water. And that's because they're banks, and they're not moving. If the water's going to get through here, it's going to go deeper, not wider. And that, that's the way emotions are, it seems like, when it comes to the best poetry. Mm. Is that you, you I'm going to force you pain I'm going to force you joy into this mold. It, it is so counterintuitive to, to contemporary 21st century spontaneity. We think if you're going to be authentic and deep in your emotion, I mean, authentic in your emotions, you, you must be spontaneous. Don't read me a prayer. Just let it come from your heart. Top of your head, bottom of your heart. And what you know what you usually get when that happens is jargon tried and true lead God and direct us O Lord God lead God and direct, God and direct. I mean thousands of times you hear that from spontaneous prayer by the deacons at the Lord's table 
Brother James, you pray for the, pray for the bread. Thank you, John. We can be here this morning, have opportunity, have opportunity to worship you, and pray you lead, guide, and direct, pastor, and, and thank you for many blessings. Amen. That's spontaneity. <coughs> Give me a break. That is pure rut. That is pure rut, and we call it spontaneous. It's not. What 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 we've got to do if if we want language to do what lamentations does is wrestle and struggle with it. Mm. Um, I think the Bible jo- invites us to join it in this. The Bible is filled with every manner of literary device to add impact to language. Acrostics, alliteration, analogies, anthropomorphisms, assonance, cadence, chiasms, consonants, dialogue, hyperbole, irony, metaphor, meter, onomatopoeia, paradox, parallelism, repetition, rhyme, satire, simile, they're all there and more. And it seems to me that God invites us to join Him in the creativity of His eloquence when He says, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. That's Proverbs 15:23. Or, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Proverbs 25:11. Or, like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. You got to know what you're talking about, or if you use a proverb and it doesn't make any sense, it's just like legs that don't work. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. In other words, give thought to the aptness and seasonableness and fitness and timing and appropriateness of your words. And here I just feel immediately. The, the clawings of warnings at the back of my mind, lest I turn DG into people who sound artificial. We all have become little little artists, and we're all going to outdo one another in cleverness. Yeah, you know, just, yeah. This is so. Um, don't don't go there. This is this is either natural, or it's or it's artifice, and we don't want artifice. So if you listen to a preacher and you're constantly conscious, clever statement, clever turn of phrase, something's amiss, you know, just something's weird. And so that, that's a warning that I don't want us to go, to go there. Um, okay, I've got my Bible open to Proverbs 3 because of my devotions yesterday and this would be the closest thing to uh, content application to your lives and where some of you, all of you are from time to time. I'm at verses 11 and 12, and, and I'm going to read it, make an application, then I'm going to read a poem that I wrote about it, I think. I think it's that. Oh, no, no, I'm going to read something John Dunn wrote about it. <laughs> i get mixed up. Okay, my son, this is verse 11 of Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. So God disciplines us as his children. So here the word son, 
hear the word God, hear the word discipline, and he doesn't want us to react angrily. I don't like people who commend anger toward God. I don't like this. It's a bad idea. We, we may get angry with God, but we should repent after we're done. And God can handle it. That's true. But don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Or be weary of His reproof. That means it goes on a long time and you get tired of it. It's gone on long enough, Lord. I'm tired of it. Don't, don't go there. Don't go there. So that those two amazing warnings, anger at God's discipline, and I'm just fed up with it. It's just too long, like a lifetime. Four, the reason we shouldn't be fed up and angry, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. And you may say it doesn't feel like love. Yeah, that's why he's teaching us. Of course it doesn't. He's teaching us how to experience it. He loves us. He loves us. Now, so far, not new to me and not especially fresh to me. But the next phrase is, is life-changing. If if it hits you deep enough. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Huh. Delights? While he's disciplining me? Because he disapproves of what I've done? Because he, he sees imperfections in me that need Sanctifying, He sees rough edges that need knocking off. He sees dross that needs burning out. He's delighting. This, I, thought, I thought when you spank a child, it's the moment when you don't delight in him. Other times you delight in him, you pick him up and you hug him. Good job! When you're spanking him, don't do that anymore. That's not the way to behave. What, what is this then? The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So here's the application. Some of you are more wired than others, and please take heed if you are, and all of us are wired like this sometimes. We, if you saw God while he's disciplining you, you would see him as, his hands would be like this, and, and we've all got a sense of this. Culturally, this communicates. That, that's the picture. Or we see him like this. The 14-year-old. Like, which, which means, you, how many thousands of times are you going to do that? You know, the eyes roll. Now, this and this communicate what, what I would call contempt. The, the word contempt means to your teenager or your five-year-old, you disgust me. I'm sick of you. Now, that's not what I sense in the word delight here. 
God is not pleased with my, my pride, my selfishness, whatever it is in me that needs to be burned away, my, my, my fear, my greed, my covetousness, my lust, what, whatever he sees in me, he disapproves of it, and he's going to use whatever it takes to burn it out of me. But, but we must somehow see him with, with a different kind of countenance than the rolling of the eyes, and the, you disgust me, because he's a father who delights in us. So, I've been really trying to own that. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to get up in the morning, when you're prone to always feel guilty in the morning, like the father must be displeased, because whatever, you know. You don't have to have any reason at all. Just bad feelings in your brain or head or heart or stomach or wherever. And and so what, what you do, and I, I read this from uh, John Donne, just a little, little phrase. In fact, I think, yeah, this is from a blog from some weeks ago. Thou, no, though that, John Donne, you know, what, 300 years ago, 1631, he died. 400. Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. <laughs> oh, that's good. That is so good. Let me read it again. Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which thou, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. And that came so close to, to what I was feeling, that the, the effect of those... Five, four lines of poetry had a big whop. He worked hard. I mean, disguise, eyes, despise, sometimes the broken lines. I mean, different features to this that that didn't come in a moment. And the fact that he would give effort to find a way to say that tells me he's, he's wrestled with some of what I wrestled with. He must have. He wouldn't have written it like that. He, he has a God who's angry at him and not despising him. Angry and not despising. That is what I'm saying. Spanking and not contemptuous. Hands are not on the hip. Eyes are not rolling. And yet, something like, Son, don't do that anymore. I love you. I'm not going to let you do that. The feel of the tone of voice that says, My son, I love you. I delight in you. I'm, you're on the, the way to becoming me, like me. And I didn't. Um, I should have said to Ryan yesterday, Here are a couple of books. He said, he said I don't have a pointing bone in my body, what do I do. Um, this is the volume of collect, a collected volume of Christian poetry for the last thousand years. And so it's called A Sacrifice of Praise. Maybe out of print, I don't know, but put it on your bedside table and just take a taste every night for a minute, two minutes. That's what I do. Um, so that's, that's one resource, a sacrifice of praise. Um, 
And then <laughs> the poet laureate of America five years ago was Ted Couser. He's an old Couser of a guy. <laughs> I love it. I love this picture. He just looks like a like he doesn't have any teeth. <laughs> I love this book. It's called The Poetry Home Repair Manual. It's it's just about poetry. And I just loved it. I could already put it down. So another resource. Um, and this got a chapter in it on poetry. But um, Clyde Kilby was my lit teacher. One of the big reasons probably why I was moved the way I am. Clyde Kilby is, is with the Lord now and was my lit teacher at Wheaton. And he came to First Covenant Church here in 1976 while I was still at Bethel. And he gave a talk. And these, this is on our website. I mean, everything I have ever written is on our website, I think. And um, so it's a wonderful resource to me. I said to Josh the other day, I said, I just love finding what I've written at DG. I, I, don't, I don't know where it is at home, but I can find it at DG. Um, so I printed this out. And I'm going to do for you what he did for me. I'll read these and then we'll be done with my, my part. He, he gave a talk on something like poetry and life. He wrote a book called Poetry and Life. And, and uh, he was from Tennessee and had a southern accent. And was just, he looked just like this guy right there. Just, <laughs> Uh, and and he would he would walk into class and he'd give devotions before he got into the romantic literature stuff. His devotions often came from the Old Testament, and I remember the series that came from Job thirty eight thirty nine about the animals and you know the ostrich that is given by God's stupidity so that she'll step on her egg that sort of thing. I mean, and and he would read it, effuse about it laugh out loud at the world of nature, pray and get into poetry. And I would sit there thinking, this man is so in touch with so much that I'm oblivious to. I just want to listen. I just want to absorb. He walks through the day and he sees what I don't see. That's, the, that's what I mean by the poetic heart. You, you walk into a room and, and you see things. You see. And, and everything is analogical. It's an analogy for other realities, deeper realities than just fluorescent light. Who likes fluorescent light? Yeah, but we, we like light. You know? But So what does that mean? There's light that you like, but it could be better. You know, things like that. But just your mind is always moving from reality to reality toward God. But he closed that talk with um, 11 pieces of counsel for mental health. And I'm going to read them to you and we'll be done. At least once every day I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a, conscience, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. Number two, instead of the accustomed idea of a mindless and endless evolutionary change to which we can neither add nor subtract, I shall suppose the universe guided by an intelligence which, as Aristotle said of Greek drama, requires a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think this will save me from the cynicism expressed by Bertrand Russell before his death when he said, 
there is darkness without, and when I die there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Number three, I shall not fail in I shall not fall into the falsehood that this day or any day is merely another ambiguous and plodding twenty-four hours, but rather a unique event filled, if I so wish, with worthy potentialities. I shall not be fool enough to suppose that trouble and pain are wholly evil parentheses in my existence, but just as likely ladders to be climbed toward moral and spiritual manhood. Four. I shall not turn my life into a thin, straight line which prefers abstractions to reality. I shall know what I am doing when I abstract, which, of course, I shall often have to do. 5. I shall not demean my own uniqueness by envy of others. I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological or social categories I might belong to. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. 6. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying, ecstatic existence. 7. I shall sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in childhood and try, at least for a little while, to be, in the words of Lewis Carroll, the child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. 8. I shall follow Darwin's advice and turn frequently to imaginative things such as good literature and good music, preferably, as Lewis suggests, an old book and timeless music. 9. I shall, I shall not allow the devilish onrush of this century to usurp all my energies, but will instead, as Charles Williams suggested, fulfill the moment as the moment. I shall try to live well just now, because the only time that exists is now. And finally, number 10. I said there were 11, there were only 10. Even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic, neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. So you can feel the kind of thing I mean by mental health and the poetic heart. And it has everything to do with the cross of Jesus because without somebody saying it well, we probably wouldn't have seen it. And he bought us so that we could enjoy him that way. And the, uh, 
brief questions or comments before we pray. This is not a pressure to be a poet. This is a pressure to have a poetic eye and heart. Very few people are called to craft words that way. I mean, if you try, if if you try, you'll your wife will like it, but maybe nobody else. Which is worth it, maybe. I, I think families should do that sort of thing for each other. I, I wrote a poem for my boys every birthday. I wrote a poem for Noel every Mother's Day, every Valentine's Day, every Christmas, every. Um, yeah, maybe those were the only ones. Birthday, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. Anniversary. What? Anniversary. Anniversary. Absolutely. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. I feel like everything you're saying can be broadened under the term art and creativity. Yep. yep. When, when you're reading the John Donne I was looking at that picture because mm -hmm. my my poetic language is visual. Mm -hmm. I look right here. I look at yeah. what Makoto's done. Yep. So there's there's different languages <coughs> to do everything that you just said. Right. And I mean, I, I was just amazed listening to that poem that you read and looking at that picture. Mm -hmm. I, that that was where I the feeling and the yep. expression and yeah yeah yep. you as words. Needs more visual, yeah. so there's different languages, and I and then you know the whole thing came up because Ryan asked you, I have a poetic bone in my life. He's probably got some kind of artistic expression. I should have said that. Does. I should have said that. And it may be different, yeah, but right. it's, I think it's there. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I think it's there in everybody. I think it's the image of God, yeah. the mind of the Maker by Dorothy Sayers. Have you ever heard of the book? The mind of the maker, make photographs, make art, make poems, make dinner, a beautiful, a beautiful salad. I mean, some women can't make ugly salads, you know, they're just beautiful, they don't want to touch them. <laughs> Which is, 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 it does something to the soul. Some people keep their yards, you know, their edges, they, they clip the edges and you walk by their yard, it does something good inside, mm -hmm. whereas grass growing through the sidewalks and broken glass everywhere does something opposite to the soul. It's, you, you're absolutely right, just broaden it out, broaden it out to gardening. So what, what do we do next here? Do we pray or do we pray. eat or do we stop or what, what should we do? Pray. Let's pray uh, until nine. Oh, okay. <clears throat> eat pancakes. Father, what we want is to see. We want to see Christ in His fullness. We want to see His way, His teaching, His character in His fullness. We want to see it and we want to savor it with all that we are. And so open, open our hearts. Mm to see the contours of Christ and to love Him and be moved by Him, to be stunned at His greatness and humbled at His holiness and made hopeful by His compassion and made authentic by His hatred of hypocrisy and a thousand other things that He is open our eyes to to see him and his glory